Hello, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of Fam Church, and this is our podcast. Sunday was Easter Sunday, and what a day it was. We saw many people find faith in Jesus through our message titled, A Beautiful Life. Welcome on this Easter Sunday. We're so excited that everyone is here today. I just really love those songs that we did. I really like the resurrecting song, the second to last one that we did. I just feel the words are just so powerful in that song. But um, you may be here and you may be wondering what's going on. I was going to say, I was going to give a short talk, but it depends on your definition of short, whether you would consider this a, a short talk or not. But uh, we've been in, a, in, the, in, a, in the study of the book of James recently, and so we're going to veer off of that here for a few weeks. Uh, first, we're going to have a special mes- uh, Easter message. I stumbled my M in my Easter there. Um, and then after Easter, man, we have got a three-week series coming up starting next Sunday called Game of Thrones. And so you should be on your way out the door today. You're going to get a little flyer for that just to tell you about that. But yeah, that starts next Sunday. And um, so Easter, what is Easter? Easter is the day that people who call themselves Christians remember something. Remember the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's important because this is an event in world history. This is something that took place that redefines history. But it doesn't just redefine history, it can be a point, a place in time that can literally redefine your life and take your life from a place that you don't like it to a place called a beautiful life. And that's why we've entitled this morning's message, A Beautiful Life. And some of you are probably going to be needing some convincing this morning that a beautiful life can even be yours because of some of the things you've been through. But I'm here to tell you today that because Jesus rose from the dead, anyone can have that beautiful life that they are looking for. And so to kind of get into this, I've got a lot of information I've got to pack in in a short time, and so I don't have many funny stories today, i just got lots of stuff, and we're going to go where this whole thing broke down. Where did this beautiful life break down? Because, you know, when God created this world, when we read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created the world and it was beautiful. He looked on and he said, it is good. He was excited. He was happy. He was pleased. He was so thankful for this world that he created. And we see in verse 1 and verse 2, everything was humming along nice. There was a couple named Adam and Eve. They were dropped in something called the Garden of Eden. And they were just kind of chilling. Life was going good and nothing was wrong. But then something happened and the world broke down. And how it broke down was this. God had given Adam and Eve one simple rule to follow. And that rule was this. Do not eat from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pretty simple rule to follow, I would think. Well, somewhere along the line, by the time we get to chapter 3 in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve don't find that rule so simple. And they come up with this idea. They say, you know what? We're not supposed to eat this fruit, but dang, that looks good. Has anybody ever said that about anything? And it wound up getting you in all kinds of trouble. You looked at that girl and you said, dang, she looks fine. And then you got with her and you found out she was anything but fine. And she messed you all up. Guys or girls, maybe you had the same thing with that guy. Ooh, look at that. Sit back. Mmm. And that six-pack got you in all kinds of places you didn't want to end up. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. They looked at this fruit and they said, man, that looks fine. And they took this fruit and they ate this fruit. They ate, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then something happened and sin entered into the world. 
That sin, that thing that Adam and Eve did that they were not supposed to do wrecked everything. So if you're looking for someone to blame, we can blame Adam and Eve. The only problem is there's not, they're not around to blame anymore. You can't go spit on them. You can't, go to their, you can't egg their house. You can't, uh, you know, uh, stick something, an ice pick. I don't suppose anyone has ice picks around here. In their tire, on the sidewall of their tire. Anybody, has anybody ever had their tires ice picked? I have. I parked in the wrong spot in Boston one time, and somebody ice picked three of our tires. Yeah, just, uh, it was like people thought they owned the street there. And so if you parked in a spot that they claimed as their spot, they would hurt your car, even though you had no idea it was their spot. Anyways, I digress from, uh, from, uh, from the message. But uh, here's the thing. Adam and Eve, they wrecked everything. They wrecked our world and everything in it. And most importantly, it destroyed our connection with God. This beautiful world that God had created, this beautiful life that God had intended for his creation fell apart right there in that moment. And it could be fixed... But there was a high price to fix it because you see, the penalty for committing sin was death. Now God, in the beginning, he came up with a solution after this had taken place and we can find the solution in the book of Leviticus and to sum it up because if you tried to read the book of Leviticus, I'm not going to lie to you, it'll put you to sleep really fast, okay? You'll be reading all this stuff going, what on earth is going on here? And you'll be out like that. So I will sum it up for you rather than reading that book because I don't want everyone to fall asleep. But uh, here's the deal. Everyone every year would have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice for the sins that they committed that year. They'd have to bring an animal. They'd have to bring a turtle dove, a, a lamb, a turtle dove, or if you were poor, you could bring a grain offering, and they would bring that there and give it to the high priest for the sins that they committed. And you may be saying to yourself, well, that seems like a pretty good system here. If all I had to do to get my sins forgiven was go to Jerusalem once a year and just hand them a stalk of wheat and say, here, here's your wheat uh, for my sacrifice for my sin, I mean, we'd be good. We wouldn't have to be sitting here in church on a Sunday morning. We could have our Sundays free. But there was a problem with this system. You may be saying, well, why would God put this system into place if there was a problem with it? And I wish I had time to answer that question, uh, but I don't. And if you'd like some thoughts on it, you're more than welcome to email me at pastorbrian at myfamchurch.com, and we can talk about it. But here, there were huge issues with with this system, and here's the basic problems. Okay, first, it didn't bring freedom and hope. It didn't restore a beautiful life. Because what happened was now, all of a sudden, You had to make sure that you were bringing something to Jerusalem every year. Instead of being free from something, you actually had an additional weight put on your shoulder of offering this sacrifice each and every single year. And so it didn't restore the relationship with God. It didn't forgive the sin that was inside of us because of Adam and Eve. It didn't do any of the the repairing work that it needed to do. It was just another ritual. It just led to people realizing that they will never be free. They will be chained to this religious system for the rest of their lives. The second reason is this. Hebrews 10.4 says this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Here's the reason why. All right, so let's say someone murdered one of your family members. And if you're in here this morning and this actually happened to you, uh, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I'm just trying to show the problem here, okay? And so somebody murders a loved one of yours, your husband, your wife, one of your children, your mom, your dad, whatever. Just put somebody in that spot, okay? And so they go to trial, and uh, they're put, brought before a judge, and they're tried, and the jury finds them guilty of this crime, okay? They're, they're found guilty of first-degree murder. And so come the, the sentencing day comes, and you appear in court on that sen- sentencing day, and, and the judge says, you've been found guilty of first-degree murder. And you're looking at this going, yes, they're going to get life, they're going to get the death penalty, they're going to get something here that's going to pay for what they did. 
And then all of a sudden the judge stops and says, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. This dude who committed this crime, he's got a dog. His name is Rover. And what we're going to do is we're going to put Rover in jail. We're going to put Rover to death for the crime that he committed. How many of us would be pleased with that sentence? Nobody would be pleased with that sentence, right? Because Rover didn't commit the crime. Rover was just the dude's dog. Well, it's the same problem with the sacrificial system. Okay? The animal didn't commit the sin. The animal wasn't the one who broke God's law. It was people. And the penalty for sin is death, as we already said. But if God were to say, okay, everyone needs to pay the penalty for their sin, and we'd all have to die. God didn't want that either because it would defeat the purpose of him creating us in the first place. He wanted a relationship with us, not to wipe us out. And there isn't anything beautiful in all of us being wiped out. And so the deal was God needed to find a person. God needed to find a human being that could pay the price, that could die in our place for our sin. But every human that has ever lived has sin inside of them. So the plan had to be really drastic. God said that he loved us so much that he was going to take the biggest, most intense step possible. He was going to send his son Jesus to pay that price. God was going to pay the price for our sins. He was so desperate for our freedom. He was so desperate for us to have that beautiful life that he intended that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin. So Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, was arrested, tried, found guilty, then executed on a Roman cross. But he died, or he died, but he didn't stay dead. If Jesus would have stayed dead, if Jesus wouldn't have come out of the grave, we would have no reason to be sitting here talking this morning. The New Testament even tells us that. Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's basically saying if the resurrection didn't happen, anybody who believes in Jesus actually needs to be pitied. Because they're dumb, stupid people. Amen? <laughs> Nobody wants to say amen to that, right? But that's what he's saying. That's what he wrote. He's saying, look, it's the resurrection. This is what defines our faith. This is what restores the beautiful life back to everyone. The resurrection was a statement that everything Jesus had said is true. It's a statement that says this whole series of events that took place that we could read about in the New Testament was from God because who else could raise the dead but God? It was a statement that once again we could have the beautiful life we are looking for that was ruined by this unwise decision of Adam and Eve many years ago. And here's what I know. There are some of you sitting in this room right now saying to yourselves, yep, my life is anything but beautiful. It's marked by pain and destruction. 
Maybe something like Mark 5, 1 through 15 feels more like your story, and I'm going to read it here. Uh, The book of Mark is the uh, second book of the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with it or don't have a Bible handy, it'll be on the screen behind me. It's kind of long. It's about, it's 15 verses, and so I know it's really hard to listen when somebody reads something, but I couldn't find any way to cut this down. And it says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep banks into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So some of you, as I was sitting there reading this description, as I was reading about this man who Jesus encountered, You were saying to yourself, dude, I can totally relate to that. My life is a life where it feels like there's demons just on me. There's voices speaking into me. It feels like everywhere I go, I've got chains upon my life. Things are holding me down. Things are holding me back. I'm cutting myself with rocks and stones, and I don't know why. I just want to inflict some sort of pain on my life just to make sure that I am still alive, that I am still living. And there's nothing beautiful about what's happening in or around me. Can I tell you this? The demons that taunt you, the chains that hold you, the stones that cut you are not supposed to be there. See, the addictions that control your life, the stuff that you can't get away from and the stuff that haunts you and keeps you from that beautiful life can be destroyed and removed from you, just like it was with the man in the story that we just read. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. This is what Easter is about. It's about those who are held up, those who are caught, those who are trapped in sin and the, the, the world and this world and the, the, the stuff and junk and garbage that it tries to pile on you and hold you down with. But Jesus can come and set you free from all of that. He can make your life beautiful. Now, it won't be easy, but you can have a beautiful life. But here's the second thing I know. Some of you sitting in here would say, wow, that's great, but that doesn't help me. I've never been in trouble with the police. I'm not a drug user. I'm not a heavy drinker. I've got a good life. I've got a good job. I've got kids. I've got a spouse. I've got a nice house. I've got a nice car. Everything about my life is nice. There's no way on earth Jesus could do anything for me to possibly make it more beautiful than it already is. 
I'm living the American dream, and that's all I need. Well, we're going to turn to John chapter 3. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 of chapter 3, and it's a story of a man named Nicodemus. And this is what it says. It says there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe me. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. All right, so here's this encounter with Nicodemus, with a man named Nicodemus, and I hope you're thinking, who is Nicodemus? He kind of tells us a little bit about who he is in the text, but what we find out is, first of all, he was called a Pharisee, and he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. A Pharisee was a Jewish religious leader who followed all the rules and regulations of the Jewish law. These men were also very politically active. They were very well-educated. They had financial resources that most people of that day and time did not have. They, were, um, they, they had influence. They had influence with the leaders and the celebrities of their day. Their kids went to the best private schools. They had nice houses in the best part of town. It meant that they had uh, things that no one else had and got privileges that no one else got. And to top it off, Nicodemus was also a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the central Jewish authority for the Jews. Uh, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin, and they were chosen from, chosen from the leading <clears throat> priestly families of Israel. So this guy was one of the elite. Thank you. I was just going to ask somebody to grab a water because my throat is slowly closing. So these people lived a nice, cushy, and easy life. They had no need of anything. They weren't looking around, looking at life, going, how can I make my life more beautiful than it is? How can I get more into my life? Because you know what? I have got everything I could possibly need. They felt they had all the amazingness that anyone could possibly contain in their life right there and then. They could take vacations when they wanted. They ate what they wanted. They had the best furniture. They lived a great life. And this was not that common 2,000 years ago. This type, type of life was not the norm. Today, we know many people who live a very comfortable life, who have nice houses, nice cars, nice jobs, nice kids, nice families, nice, nice, nice. But back then, it just was not a norm. But here was Nicodemus. He had it all. He was living what we would call the American dream. And yet, Nicodemus still comes to Jesus. Because Nicodemus realized something in his life 
that we've got to come to the realization living in America, first of all, and this has Nicodemus didn't have to realize this, well, maybe he did, but having a relationship with God is not based upon the country that you are living in. See, Nicodemus thought because he was a Jew and he was living in Israel and he was bucking the Roman system that that made him a child of God. And a lot of people think that because I'm from America or because I'm from the South in America, I'm from the Bible Belt, that we've got this relationship with Jesus and it's just not true. There's only one way to Jesus, and he tells us that in the text, and it says, he says we must be born again. I know that sounds weird, but that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. A second thing here is that no matter how much you have it all together, it doesn't change the fact that we have all missed the mark. See, Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he never confronted him on the sin that he had in his life. But even though he never confronted him on his sin, he still let him know that he had sin and it was keeping him from God. Nick, uh, Jesus was quite clear with Nicodemus. He said, look, nobody has made it into heaven because of their religious life. No one has made it into heaven because they followed the rules, because they've done the right thing, because, you know, they behaved, because they were good people. Jesus says that's not the way it works. Jesus says the only way to get there is by trusting in me and allowing me to come and forgive your sins and remove them from your life. Your own merit is not going to do it. And the same is true for all of us. No matter how much our life is put together and going great, we fall short of what Jesus has for our life. See, God loves us. God cares for us. He wants to give you a beautiful life. But if we don't look to Jesus, no matter how great our life is, we're going to miss out on the most beautiful life at all. And some of you are maybe struggling right now as you hear this because you're saying to yourself, well, you know, you're talking about this sin thing, but I don't even see that in my life. You know, I look at my life and I don't feel guilty about anything that I'm doing. I don't feel guilty about how I'm living my life. And surely if I was sinning, if I was doing something wrong, I'd feel guilty about it, right? Okay, well, let's think about that for a minute. So let's say we're driving to Orlando after, uh, after service today and we're out on I-4 and we're cruising along at 85, 90 miles an hour. Anyone been there, done that? All right, a few of you. I know most of you guys follow the speed limit, huh? I'm impressed. As we fly by that sign that says 70 miles an hour on I-4, do we see that sign and go, oh, snap. It's only 70 out here? Oh, dude, I feel so guilty about this. I better slow on down. Has anybody ever had that response to the sign? Or as you blow past it, do you chuckle and go 70 miles an hour? Yeah, right. So just because we don't feel guilty about something doesn't mean that what we're doing isn't wrong. And that's the way it is, which I mean, before I was a Christian, before I believed in Jesus, I looked at my life and I thought I was a pretty good person. I didn't need anything more. I was being good. I was nice. I was kind to people. I, I cared about people, that sort of thing. But it wasn't until I came to Christ and I realized how far short I had fallen. 
And the reason simply was this. I mean, our, my family really didn't go to church. You know, I didn't have Bible stuff like being put in my head all the time. You know, that wasn't at the forefront of my heart and my mind. And so God wasn't at the forefront of my heart and mind. And so any of the rules or any of the things that God has said are, are, are going to hurt your life. I just wasn't thinking of those things. I was just living my life and thought that everything was okay. And so just like me, whether or not we feel guilty, there really is no hope for any of us without Jesus. See, that's why Jesus mentions Moses lifting up the snake in the desert in John chapter 3. It's always fun when you talk about snakes in church because every, anybody who's watched TV thinks this is the time we're going to break out the snakes, right? And we're going to start, we're going to start dancing with snakes and uh, handing snakes off and asking you to test your faith by snakes, right? Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. All right, that's just... Most people are crazy, man. All right. So what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about uh, an event in the Old Testament when Moses was the leader of the nation of Israel. They're wandering through the desert waiting to enter the promised land, and through a crazy series of events, the camp is invaded by venomous, biting snakes. Well, back in that day, you couldn't just rush off to the hospital and get an anti-venom shot if you got bit by a snake. Once you got bit, you just had to stop and pray and hope that your body wouldn't completely shut down and fail on you after you got bit by said snake. And so here they are, they're wandering through the desert, snakes come into the camp, and they start biting people. And so God tells Moses to build a bronze serpent on a pole and tell people that if they get bit, to stare at the snake on the pole and they will not die. Which, by the way, this spot, if any of you have ever seen those symbols for the doctor with the two snakes wrapped around the poles, that's where that actually comes from, this text right here. Um, but, uh, and so, you may be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, so I get bit by a snake, I'm just supposed to stop, look at this bronze snake over here and stare at it for a few minutes, and that'll take care of the problem? I mean, how many of us would be patient when we got bit by a snake. How many of us, when a snake came up and bit us, would go, oh, okay, I know what to do here. All right, stay calm. Look at the snake on a pole. No, all of us. I mean, we saw snakes. How many of you saw a snake? You would be screaming like a little schoolgirl. How many of those do we have in the room today? All right, we got a couple of people with both hands up. And so you're saying to yourself, why would God do that? That just seems dumb. Why not just get rid of the snakes? Move them out of the camp. Don't let everybody get bit. Well, it was for one simple reason. The point that God was making in having them look at that serpent on a pole is that they needed to be calm and realize that if they just trust God, they trust what he was providing, they would be saved from their situation. See, and just like the Israelites in the desert all of us have been infected with a poison in our life. We've been infected with the poison of sin, whether we know it, whether we recognize it or not. We have it whether we feel guilty about anything or not. And there is a cure out there, but it's not the cure that we think it should be. Okay, the cure is Jesus crucified on a cross, rising from the dead three days later. See, this Son of God is the anti-venom for the poison that we have got inside of our bodies, regardless of how good a life we are living. And Jesus, he looked straight at Nicodemus, and he said, Nicodemus, look, 
No matter how great your life is, no matter how much you've achieved in your religiosity with the Jews, until you come to me and surrender your life to me and give it to me, nothing is going to change about you. You are not going to get the cure. You are not going to find what you are looking for. The beautiful life that you're trying to grab hold of is not going to be yours. And so he says to him, are you going to take the cure or are you going to go on with a poison in your system that will eventually kill you because you don't feel guilty and your life is good? Because good won't get it. And the second thing, or the third thing I'd like to point out here, is that you may have a good life right now, but with Jesus, he tells us that we can have more than that. He promises a beautiful life, a full, rich, and satisfying life. This is what it says in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus doesn't prom- just doesn't promise us life. He promises us a full life. He promises a life complete, a life totally done, a life that's got everything that it needs contained within it. And you may be saying to yourself, I've already found that life. Well, if you're not walking with Jesus, there's still even greater available for you there. It doesn't matter how good it may seem without him. And so you've listened to this and you're saying to yourself, okay, so what does that mean then? How do I get a hold of it? How do I access this wonderful, this good, this full, this satisfying life? Here's the part where most of you who are in Nicodemus's position are going to shut down and say, I'm good. To get that rich, satisfying life, we have to give up control of our own life and give it to Jesus and live the life he has called us to live. Mark 8, 34 through 37 says this. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Our full and abundant life comes from giving everything that we are and handing it to Jesus and saying, Jesus, take this life. Take control of this life. Do with me what you want to do. It's not about my goals. It's not about my purposes. It's not about my plans. It's not about my hopes, my dreams, my passions, my love, my anything. It's about you, Jesus, and what you want from my life. And Jesus has called us to simply live on his mission. His mission is reaching those who don't know him. And this is the thing that 2% of Christians actually do this. Actually communicating with others what Jesus has done for you so that they can know this rich, full, satisfying, beautiful life that Jesus has to offer. 
that's when we're going to get that full and abundant life. It's never going to come from pursuing more of anything, more kids, more money, better jobs, bigger house, nicer cars, our kids being whatever. We're not going to find the full, rich, satisfying life that we're looking for and that it may seem complete, but God has more in store for us when we surrender to him. And it's because Jesus was the one who formed us. Jesus was the one who created us. He knows us and will put us on a track to fulfill the purpose that he has for our life. Because that is when we get in the zone. When we get into the full, abundant life, it's when we're living the purpose that God has for us. Living our lives no longer for ourselves, living our lives no longer controlled by the power and the grip and the hold of sin, and instead walking in the direction that he has called us to walk in. And not only does that set us up for a rich, satisfying life here on this earth right now, it sets us up for an eternity in his presence, not separated from him, allowing a full, total, and complete ever after. Where we stand in his presence, where our pain and our suffering and our tears and our hurt and all of that is gone, and we are in the presence our God who loves us and cares for us. And that's ultimately the beautiful life that God had intended for us from the beginning. Because Adam and Eve were sent here to live a perfect life so that we could all have a perfect life here on this earth and never die. But God had to do it a different way, and now we get that in the eternity to come. And so this morning, it's quite simple. If you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, you know what? I need this Jesus. I need Jesus to come in. Whether your life is the train wreck that we looked at with, uh, with Mark chapter 5 and the demon-possessed man and you're looking at your life and going, this thing is a disaster. This thing is a mess. I need this thing to be cleaned up. Jesus can come and start the cleanup process now this morning. Also, if you're Nicodemus and you're saying to yourself, man, I've got a good life, but I know Jesus has something more in store for me. He's got an even more, a more beautiful life in store for me than what I've even got now. You can start that this morning as well. And it's really simple. You just have to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want the life that you have for me. That's all you have to say. He'll come into your life. He'll get you headed on the right path and the right track because he wants you to have a beautiful life, not only now, but after you die as well. And so this morning, we're going to close in a word of prayer. So if you could close your eyes with me. Thank you for joining us on the FAM Church podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. 
Thank you again and have an amazing day.